For many of us, 2020 has been an awful year, a very difficult year. And some of us, if we're being honest, we walked in this evening feeling a bit discouraged or fatigued or overwhelmed with your present circumstances or what your future holds. And it wasn't just personal events that, that are making us feel this way. Uh, this past year, there were events on a national, global, worldwide scale that affected everyone, it seems. Earlier, in the, and even throughout the year, we saw many deaths of African Americans. People like Ahmaud Arbery, Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor, and of course, George Floyd, who autopsies reveal his heart stopped beating as he was experiencing unnecessary and brutal neck compression. Although we have made tremendous progress over the past 50 years, past 100 years, the reality of this past year shows that racism still exists. Injustices towards women and people of color still exist tremendously. It's not okay. We saw stuff with the political election, the presidential election, the future state of America. And some of us are feeling more anxious and more scared than ever. And we saw tremendous prosperity in America in the 20th century. And some of you were around for that and just saw it do this. And now you look around and you're starting to feel more afraid about where, where's this stuff going? Can we trust these leaders or not? Can we put our hope in the voting system next time? Is this fair? Is this not fair? Feeling angry and unrighteous anger or even righteous anger about things, about leadership or non-leadership or attacks on the church or attacks on Christian education has people feeling really tense. Of course, this COVID, this pandemic and evil virus, over 75 million cases over 1.5 million deaths worldwide and growing daily by the thousands. It's caused financial strains, loss of jobs, even people. Not to mention the toll this pandemic is starting to cause for most of us our, our mental and emotional health of being inside all the time and not having life as normal and wondering when things are going to get better. It it would be very easy to look back on this past year and legitimately say, look up to the heavens, whether you're a Christian or not, and say, God, where are you? you? And you're good, why are you allowing all of this to happen? That's a position that some atheists take or some secular voices Say that God is not there, that he's not real, that he's not present, that he's not good. For example, in his book, The Miracle of Theism, one philosopher, J.L. Mackey, argues a case against God, the God of the Bible. Listen how he puts it. He says this, If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. 
some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Pointless evil, unjustifiable evil must mean that there's no creature. That logic is seriously flawed on a number of levels. And Tim Keller responds in his book, The Reason for God, he says this, Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. It just means that you can't see one or I can't see one. But we're limited in our intelligence. We're limited in our faculties. We're limited in our cognitive abilities to figure things out. We can be very smart. We can have very good thinking skills. And yet... We can't figure everything out all the time. That's the point of having faith. And so some people who put all their hope and what they see and their own thinking ability tend to be very far from God. So if I can't prove it, if I can't see a reason, it must not be real. But just because we can't see a reason doesn't mean there isn't one. There, there still could be one. God is infinite, all-powerful, we, we tend to think of God as sort of a modified version of ourselves, a little bit bigger, a little bit smarter, but he is on a whole nother stratosphere. And if, if he is really, really, really smart and knows everything and all-powerful, could, couldn't it be that he could sort of work in the world and still be doing good even if we can't see it? The answer is yes, according to the life of Joseph. Uh, you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Some of you do, some of you don't. If you don't, that's okay. Towards the middle end of the first book of the Bible, the guy named Joseph, he was a little prideful, a little cocky, sort of had this dream that God was going to use him in a big way. His brothers hated him. They sold him out to slavery. And he spent many years in misery, utter misery. And his own family rejected him. And eventually... He became the prime minister of Egypt who saved thousands of lives and his brothers too from starvation. The point is that the misery and the hardships that Joseph went through prepared him to be a great leader. That if he had not gone through all that stuff, he would not have been the great leader that he was. So not only does the whole, if I can't figure it out, it must not be true, is, goes against logic, but it also goes against experience, as Tim Keller tells us. Some of you could attest. Some of you have been walking with God for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, longer, and you've been through some trials, some difficulties. And you would say, although I hated going through it at the time, that nonsense that I went through, those hardships that I went through, helped me to be the man and woman that I am today. What does this have to do with the Christmas story? Well, everything. The Christmas story doesn't tell us everything we want to know about evil and suffering. But it does tell us that God cares. Because he came down. And he wants to do something about it. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but it does tell us everything we need to know. 
God has his prerogatives. He, he, he doesn't have to tell us everything. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that are in the Bible are for us to know, but the secret things belong to the Lord. It requires faith. It requires faith in God. So the Christmas story, we start by recognizing that all this pain and suffering has a purpose, and not only so, God cares because he came himself to deal with it. And it doesn't start in Luke. I read that from Luke. That's in the second part of the Bible. The Bible is like 70% done by the time you get to Luke. It, it doesn't start there. It actually starts in Genesis. The Christmas story starts in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything. And they created, he created Adam and Eve. And they lived in per- paradise. They were, literally speaking, perfect humans in perfect circumstances. And God put them in this garden called the Garden of Eden. There's trees and beauty and four rivers and all these awesome things and wonderful scenes. And God gives them very reasonable rules. He says, hey, look, you can eat of any tree you want. But don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. Don't do it. And so what happens next is that Satan, the devil, who's real, who's alive today, who's the cause of so much chaos in our world goes to Eve as her husband Adam passively stands by doesn't defend his wife Eve but passively stands by and the serpent goes to Adam and says did God actually say Genesis 3 2 you shall not eat of any tree in the garden did God actually say the enemy has been saying that same line to people ever since did God say did God say did God say to try to question people of God's goodness, of God's realness, of the word of God. And Eve engages in this dialogue with the enemy, right? There's, she's playing with fire. This is not good. She says that, she, God says she can have of any tree besides the one he told her. The serpent replied, he says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to their eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Theologians call this the fall. This is where sin entered the world. You don't even have to get far in the Bible without people messing up. You get to the third chapter and people are already messing things up. Sin enters the world. How would you define sin? Well, Tim Keller, I quoted him earlier. He says, sin is building your life on anything besides God. It's loving anything more than God. Augustine, a theologian from church history, he he uses this expression of disordered loves. That it's good to have desires. It's good to want to, uh, if you're single, to have a spouse or to have children or to have a successful career. It's good to want to have health. But the issue comes when we start to love those things or other things more than God. Then it starts to mess up our lives in tremendous ways. At first it doesn't seem so because we feel very autonomous in control. But once we realize that we're building our life on something other than God our lives begin to crumble. 
we feel no sense of meaning or purpose. That's kind of what sin is. Keller gets more concrete when he says, if we love our reputation more than the truth, it's likely that we'll lie. Or if we love making money more than our family, we will neglect our children for our career. Disordered love always leads to misery and breakdown. The only way to reorder our lives is to love God supremely. I would say, tweak that last line and say just to love God more than anything else. If you love anything more than God, then that thing is more important to you than God. That's sin. This is, this is the issue of the human race that Adam and Eve brought into the world. For a technical definition, Wayne Grudem says, Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So act, stealing, lying, murder, but it's also attitudes. God's concerned with your inner motives and your heart. So things like anger and lust and envy and selfishness our wrong desire. It's our nature is corrupt because of the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the wrong things we do, but it's also the right things we're supposed to do, but we don't do. Uh, theologians call this sin of commission and sin of omission. Commission is the stuff we commit, but also it's the things we're supposed to be doing, but we're not. So the German theologian Martin Luther says that we are responsible for what we say, but also what we don't say. It's, it's the stuff that we're supposed to be doing, the right actions, but we fail to commit. That as well is sin. And this starts at birth. So King David says it this way in Psalm 51.5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It starts young. You don't have to teach toddlers to sin. They just figure it out. Though we love our toddlers, we love our kids. Precious, made in the image of God. But it starts from birth because we've incurred this legal guilt and this corrupt nature from the sin of Adam and Eve. And scripture teaches that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were not only our first parents, but they also represented us. So how they did, we do. We get the credit for their work and they blew it big time. Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spreads to all men because all sinned. We sin willfully and voluntarily on a regular basis. Paul calls our Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were dead in sins. And he talks about those who haven't trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He says they were by nature children of wrath. This is strong language. So according to scripture, our, our biggest issue is it's not our self-esteem. It's not if we have as much money in the bank as we hope. It's, it's not if our career is going well or those, those things can be good. But according to scripture, the biggest issue that man has is his or her sin in light of God's holiness. If you get everything else right and you work on everything else, but you don't get this problem fixed and figure it out, Getting everything else right doesn't matter. But quickly, because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God. 
that God is holy, the scriptures teach, that he, he's a God who's loving and gracious and ready to forgive, but also ready to judge those who do not turn from sin and trust in Christ. So already in the book of Genesis, we have this dilemma. What are we going to do with our sin and the sin problem that we've incurred? Well, right away, God doesn't shame Adam and Eve, but he says he's going to make a provision. Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and she and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise about Jesus coming. About his work. Him defeating Satan. Right away. Right after Adam and Eve's sin. Although this is a serious problem. God doesn't step back and say, I'm not going to do anything about it. But he says, one day, I'm going to send my son for him to come himself. And so when we read the rest of the Old Testament, you see that the people wandered through the wilderness. They're waiting for a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior. Thousands of years go by. The people of God are waiting and say, God, you promised that you're going to deal with this sin problem Where are you? Are you going to show up? Are you absent? Between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, there were 400 years, silent years. God's timing isn't always our timing. But finally, once we get to the New Testament, we read this. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. We read that, and almost all of us are quickly drawn to the manger, and the inn, and no place for the inn, and the magi, and the presence, and Virgin Mary, and this and that, and, and all of that is good. But if you skip out on Genesis, and all the Old Testament, and you just fixate on this one verse without understanding what happened before, you're like watching a movie and fast-forwarding to like an hour and 30 minutes in. And then you just watch the last 30 minutes of the movie. You, you won't appreciate it as much. We, we roll our eyes at this. We, we say, yeah, 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 we've heard this a million times. But we forget that the people of God were waiting for a long time before Christ would come. And now, the Christmas story, the story of Jesus, it says, he has come, himself. Leaving heaven, perfect fellowship with Father and Spirit, perfect comfort being worshipped by angels, in utter majesty, and leaving all of that to come down into human form, being fully God and fully man. This is where we talk about the incarnation. This is where Jesus taking on flesh keeping his divine state, being fully God, but also adding to it humanity. It says it here in the Westminster Confession of Faith, question 21. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? It asks. Answer, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever.
forever. Talked about all the stuff we've been through in 2020 and some of you with all your stuff going on in your personal life. Start to talk about Christmas and the Christmas story and Luke and this is the beginning of realizing I'm not going to really fully understand everything that happens. There's going to be stuff that doesn't make sense. The Christmas story is a reminder that God cares because he came and he was born not in royalty but in a manger in a poor family and he suffered in many ways and being fully human he knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and tired and abandoned it says in hebrews for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin jesus tempted in every way financial difficulty abandoned by his own friends and own family knowing what it's like to have friends die. Suffered and tempted in every way, yet without sin. As Tim Keller would say, you know, every other major religion teaches, this is all the stuff you have to do to get to God. Pray seven times a day, go sit in a fetal position and say, um, go to this part of the world and do this and do that. But in the Christian religion, in the Christian story, It's not, hey, this is what you have to do to work yourself up to God. But this is what God has done to work himself to you. He came down to you to pursue you. And he he lives the perfect life. And eventually he dies on the cross in our place for our sins. And on the cross is where he took on the wrath of God. The book of Isaiah, it talks about this tremendously, about Christ and what would happen. And he says this, he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all saying that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, died, and rose. That doesn't mean that our lives are going to be easy and comfortable and everything will always go our way. But the good news of the Christmas story is the gospel, which means good news, which is the response to the bad news. The bad news is the, the beginning stuff of Genesis and, you know, and sin and deserving God's wrath and eternal condemnation. But the good news now is that Christ has come and he's made a way for us to escape that and to have a right relationship with God. By believing in him, by trusting in him, by looking to him. I was talking to someone this past week about Christian faith and he made a comment that I think is very very common that people say a lot. And he said, he said something like this. He said, he said, we just need to focus on the big picture right in front of us, trying not to treat each other fairly, trying to treat each other fairly, considerately, without malice. You know, the love thing. And um, as we were sort of going back and forth, I, I didn't say this, but I, I could have said this. But when the way that he, he worded that is um, sort of like, if, as long as you're a good person, 
or as long as you love people well, or, you know, just try to treat people nicely, which are obviously good things to do. Uh, The problem with that thinking, though, is that it, one, it undermines the severity of sin. Two, it, it removes Jesus as the Savior, and it makes yourself the Savior. It removes God as the judge and makes you the judge. Because if you think you're a good person, then you're fi- your God's okay with you. If you think you're loving people well, then you should be okay. You get, to, you get to create the standards and the criteria, and as long as you meet them, you're fine. What you're saying is, I don't need a Savior. I don't need Jesus for anything. I can save myself. And that is, that is the opposite of what Scripture teaches. It says that we were dead in our sins, and no amount of works could save us, but we need to turn from sin and trust in Christ. So being baptized as a baby is good. Being confirmed in the church can be helpful. Being born into a Christian family is a huge blessing. Going to church every once in a while is very good. Thinking that you're a good person is okay, but none of those things saves you. Yet many people think that I I did this one thing or I got baptized or was confirmed or come to church every once in a while. God must be pleased with me. And that is not correct. He's only pleased with you if you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. So I just want to encourage you this evening as we consider the Christmas stories to remember with whatever pain you're going through or difficulty that you can draw near to God and he understands what you're going through because we don't fully know why things happen but we know that he cares I just want to encourage you too if you haven't trusted in Christ and believed in him if you've put putting your hope in your baptism and your confirmation or putting your hope in knowing a few Christians are coming to church every once in a while let me encourage you to stop doing that to put your hope in Christ. Don't put any hope in any of your works, but only in Christ and Christ alone. Decide to do that. Believe in him and trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you this evening and we recognize that we are sinful and we need you. I just want to pray for if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted in Christ, who doesn't know you. Just pray, God, would you just move on their hearts? Grant them repentance and faith. Show them, God, that life with you is better than life without you. That obeying you is better than disobeying you. Help us to see, Lord. And for those of us, Lord, that are going through a lot, Lord, I know there's many, many people here who've had a hard year. Lord, we, we trust in you, but we know it's hard to do so. God, I pray that you would just draw near to us as we draw near to you. And uh, Lord, please give us a sense of peace and hope. Help. Give us a sense of peace and hope, Lord. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now going to transition into our service to a time of singing carols by candlelight. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go back there and light a candle. Some people are going to come up and, uh, you know, get their candle lit, and we're going to pass them back. Uh, don't, don't tilt your candle if it's lit, so only tilt your candle if it's not lit.